Hi, I'm Aviva Rumani, and welcome to episode 54 of Kindred Cast, a bi weekly podcast featuring insights from deal makers and thought leaders from the world of tech, media, and everything in between. Kindred Cast is a production of Kindred Media, powered by Lion Tree. On today's show, Steve Swartz, the president and CEO of Hearst Corporation, sits with Lion Tree CEO Arya Borkov to discuss his unique perspectives at the helm of the 132-year-old family-run media powerhouse. The conversation ranges from Hearst's prescient move into business media and services to Swartz's well-regarded personal style, which she describes as IBM salesman circa 1960. Tune in to hear how Steve and his colleagues are writing the next chapter of this multi-generational juggernaut. It is my pleasure to be sitting here with the president and CEO of the Hearst Corporation, Mr. Stephen Swartz. Thank you very much for being here. Thanks for having me. In its 130-year history, Hearst has grown to own iconic print and digital brands like Bazaar, L, Cosmopolitan, the San Francisco Chronicle, and more. They also have stakes in A&E, ESPN, and own companies in the business information sector like Fitch Ratings. Uh, with Steve at its helm since 2013 and in senior positions for decades prior, Hearst, which started as a newspaper business, now touches all areas of media, finance, and business. Steve has one of the more unique executive positions in the world as a leader of a very influential mass media company that controls assets of legacy and new media, as well as leading a business information conglomerate and doing it as a private company. Steve, welcome. Thank you for being here with us on KidredCast. Thank you. Hearst is one of those companies that I've talked internally about being a model, if I could be so bold, for how to really build a proper family-run business. Let me just say that I hope you and I can get together when we celebrate the 132nd birthday of Lion Tree. <laughs> Thank you very much. If we get to like the 32nd birthday of Lion Tree, I'll be happy to start. <laughs> you know, we're only seven years in the making so far. But Hearst is a unique company. And so tell me why or how it is to work at a private family-owned business that's generational in nature. Look, I think every company is unique in their own way. I think some of the things that set us apart, I mean, we are 132 years old. We had a very dynamic founder in William Randolph Hearst who was constantly challenging the business side to look for the next thing that made sense in the context of a media company. You know, here's someone who was born fabulously wealthy because his father was one of the most successful miners in the great gold and silver rush, Senator George Hearst. So he didn't really even have to work, but he went right into the newspaper business because he wanted to make a difference. He bought afternoon newspapers because he wanted to serve the common man and the, the working man's paper was the afternoon paper, but he pushed us into magazines. He pushed us into radio before he died. He lived a very long life. He bought one of the first television stations in 1948. So he established a culture at our place of pushing beyond your comfort zone 
to look for new areas of growth and innovation. And then we had another iconic leader, my predecessor, Frank Bennett, who ran the company for almost 30 years. And he pushed us much more into broadcast television and into cable television and got us going in what we call business media, which are companies like Fetch. And so, yes, we're privately held. We're actually owned by a trust. The fact is there are both management trustees and family trustees. The trustees tend to be lifetime appointments. So we have people who keep a long relationship with the company. It reinforces the culture. It reinforces the history. I think all of that makes it a relatively unique place to work. But there's something about the culture or maybe the charter or even the trustees that encourage Hearst and the company and yourself as the chief executive to put more money into the company for growth and innovation and not just to manage the assets of old. Well, again, I really think it starts with the founder. And I think that, again, because we've had this trustee system that keeps uh, executives and family members with a long, direct relationship with the company, I think that's how these things get passed on and they don't get lost. One of the shames of public companies is people reach a certain age and then they're out. They're not only out as CEO or chairman, but they go off the board. One of the things that I think helps us is that we just have this history that we're supposed to keep pushing and we're not just building the company for today's colleagues and today's dividend recipients, but for future colleagues and future dividend recipients. And that's just been passed on. I think it's in our DNA. When I became CEO, I didn't have to change anything. That was already in the culture. And of course, Frank's still right down the hall as our executive vice chairman, making sure that I don't screw things up. Hardly. But not only did you know the mandate when you became chief executive, but you also knew that the Part of the role is to innovate, is to change, is to diversify the business and get into new business lines, which you've done beautifully. Some would say Hearst may not even be described today as a media company. I mean, how would you describe Hearst? Well, we like to think of ourselves as an entertainment information and services company, but I would argue that 132 years ago, we were the same thing because when William Randolph Hearst persuaded his father to let him take over a, a newspaper that his father owned as part of a wide, diverse holdings of Senator Hearst, the San Francisco Examiner in 1887, I would argue at that time and still uh, to some degree today that a newspaper particularly back then, was a principal source of entertainment, a principal source of information, and provided all kinds of services to the community. 132 years later, I would argue that we are obviously entertainment through ESPN, through the A&E History and Lifetime channels principally, and our local stations. Information, yes, is still news, but has also morphed over time into financial credit information through Fitch, aviation and information through a company called Camp that we own, fabulous company. And then the services have become more software services. Camp is a, an aviation data and software company. We have a couple of medical software companies. So I would argue that while the actual uh, execution elements have evolved, we've stayed in three broad areas of entertainment, information, and services. Because one of the reasons why I actually started doing this podcast is because of the storytelling opportunity around this industry and really not only where we're going, but where we've come from. 
And that's why I've been looking forward to this conversation with you, Steve, because you have a sense of media and information services as not being a static concept, but where we came from and where we're going, very much still in growth mode and innovation mode. And that is a hallmark for the industry. Most times, these are public companies and very hard to transition into these new models as a public company, especially when you have a traditional B2B business, which is media in most cases, now to a B2C direct-to-consumer business, also very difficult as a skill set. So everyone says, I wish I was just a private company doing this, which you have the luxury of doing. So does it give you a different way of taking risk and being bold as a private family-controlled business versus being public? Would you ever want to be public? Ever is a long time. Uh, we have no current need or plans to uh, be public. One of the great things about our portfolio is it generates a very significant amount of free cash that allows us to keep investing in the kind of businesses that we want to invest in without going to the public markets for equity capital and actually using very little uh, debt as well. So I think, though, that it's not so much public versus private, it's a legacy and it's credibility. So whether we were public or private, we would not have been able to pull off the expansion that we had over the last several years into more and more business data or medical data or business or medical software if we hadn't had a legacy of doing that, which came out of trade publishing. So you go back 40 or 50 years through various acquisitions. I don't think trade publishing was ever a top of mind strategy for the company, but through various acquisitions, we got some trade publications, some of which we still publish. We still publish floor covering weekly. <laughs> and if you want to know what that's about, the name says it all. Uh, <laughs> but it's still a profitable industry publication. So we continue to do that. But Back 40, 50 years ago, we were publishing magazines called American Druggist. We were publishing a magazine called Motor, which was for people who repair cars for a living. Fortunately for us, the publishers of those two trade magazines, again, 40, 50 years ago, decided that as good or better business would be to be collecting data in their industry. And of course, at the time, they had to publish this data in big books because there was no internet. But American Druggist spawned a company called First Data Bank, which we own 100% of. And it is the largest source in this country of drug dosing information, drug interaction information that is relied on by hospitals and pharmacies across this country and in some other countries. So that came out of American Druggist. Motor morphed from a magazine about how to fix cars into a database as to how to fix cars and repair times and, and repair cost estimates and is now a fabulous data business that is put together, I think it's in the realm of 27 or 28 straight years of revenue and profit growth. So we did more aggressively decide, Frank Bennick and I, when I was fortunate enough to become his chief operating officer in 2011, we jointly decided with the tremendous support 
support of our board and particularly our chairman, Will Hurst, to push more aggressively into business data and business software. And since that decision, we've made $9 billion of acquisitions in that area alone. Including Fitch, right? uh, Including Fitch. We own a smaller piece of Fitch. We now own 100% of Fitch. And what is Fitch for everyone's audience? It's sort of a rating agency component as Fitch well. Fitch is one of the global ratings agencies, clearly uh, along with S&P and Moody's. And Fitch itself has a long history. And I think Paul Taylor and his team, our CEO there, do a fabulous job. And it's a global rating agency. And then it has other non-ratings financial uh, information products. So it is a large global financial uh, data. Uh, provider. Yeah, when you say ratings, obviously this is not media ratings. These are no, no, bond, I'm sorry. We are, we are talking about bond ratings. Right, for the debt markets and the financial markets. So you started off as a Wall Street Journal reporter, I believe, way back when. Take us through how that skill set and being very well read gives you the qualifications to be overseeing this conglomerate and building this company. Most of us uh, who have had any uh, success in life benefit from just having had great mentors. And from the time I joined the Wall Street Journal, I got to work with such giants in the business as Norm Perlstein and James B. Stewart, who writes a fabulous column now for the New York Times. And I think that what you learn as a financial journalist is how to analyze things. You have to sum things up quickly. You have to master a number of different industries. So I was fortunate enough to both cover Wall Street, then I was an editor on the front page desk, and then you had work on synthesizing these big stories that could have come from the foreign bureaus or the Washington bureau. So I think it was at still a very young age, I was still in my 20s, a great learning experience. And then uh, when uh, I had expressed to my bosses at the time a a long-term desire to be on the business side, when a a chance, the Wall Street Journal and Hearst started talking about publishing a financial magazine, they said to me, my bosses at the journal, so well, this would be a good opportunity for you. Why don't you be our lead representative on this project? And that led to the push into the business. Interestingly enough, that project, which was called uh, Smart Money Magazine, which we brought out in 1991, I think, the Hearst person that was put on that project was David Carey. And he did a fabulous podcast with you. And David went on to run our magazine division in a fabulous way. And we've been uh, good personal and business friends ever since. Now he's graduated to becoming a student at Harvard. (laughs) Now he is on the Harvard campus in an advanced leadership program. Mm -hmm. And I have a son who's on the Harvard campus as a sophomore. That's great. From journalist to a business person, and then obviously a chief executive and a senior executive at the Hearst Corporation. Along the way, what could you point to for your ascendancy that was an accolade or sort of a bold bet that you've made that got everyone's attention saying, well, this person really could lead this company. I don't know that it was any one thing. And I think most of a lot- Aside from the way you dress, which is impeccable. (laughs) 
<laughs> Look, a lot of things in life is luck and being in the right place at the right time, as long as you're working hard and trying hard. And, you know, I think smart money, the fact that smart money ended up being a successful launch with myself as the launch editor and David as the launch publisher. I think another thing that actually kind of helped me in an odd way is David decided after we were up and running a couple of years to move on and he joined another fabulous media company at Condé Nast. When he moved on, Frank Binnick, who has been my principal uh, mentor in life, and I've been very fortunate in that, Frank said to me, would you be interested in taking over David's business side responsibilities? And I guess I was around 31 at the time, and I very much was. So that was my first time that I was fully on the business side, and it was really a lucky uh, turn of events, both that David decided to move on and that Frank decided to give me a chance. Well, it's worked out very well. And now as the CEO, would you say that the most innovative moves that you've made or the boldest moves you've made have been in the business services area away from media? I think the biggest decision that Frank and myself and our board made was to push harder into what we call business media, which is the Fitch and the medical and the transportation uh, data and software businesses, because I think it was relatively clear back then, this was early 2011, that the entire consumer media sector, some of which were still growing at a rapid rate, certainly ESPN was knocking the cover off the ball then, A&E was blowing through their numbers every year. Positively. But, positively, yes. <laughs> but I think it was clear what we were seeing happening with newspapers getting disrupted by technology and magazines getting disrupted by technology and yellow pages getting disrupted, that the same thing was inevitably going to happen to the television business maybe not as dramatically because television is itself a digital business, but was going to happen. Something was going to happen to the model. And we were getting at that time, roughly 90% of our profits from consumer media. So we decided in our board and our management team, it really is in many respects, like a partnership at Hearst of all of our various division heads and senior executives in our board. And certainly Frank, we just decided that let's push more aggressively into an area that was already working for us. So we had the credibility. We just weren't as big as we felt we needed to be. And now uh, in 2019, we expect almost 40% of our profits to come from these B2B businesses. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, what we thought would happen has happened, not in a dramatic way, but clearly we're seeing some changes in the business model of television that has not in any way made it a bad business. It is still a very good business, but its growth pattern has clearly been altered by the changing technology and media landscape. Could you give us a sense, roughly speaking, about how big Hearst is and what the diversification is? Well, as a private company, we reserve the right not to talk about our profits, but uh, we did about $11.5 billion of revenue, and we run at a very respectable uh, margin. And about 40% of that, you think, is, you said, is business services? In 2018, it was 33% of our profits came from uh, the business media assets. The business media assets tend to have a higher margin, so mm -hmm. they're not as big a percentage of our revenue, but of our profits, 33. And because our business uh, media portfolio is growing at a double-digit clip, 
while the consumer media side is not growing anywhere near that fast, this year we think it'll be about 40% of our profits. And obviously, if those patterns continue, and we're pragmatists, so we don't know, but obviously we will move. And I think we would be in better shape if we moved more toward a 50-50 balance, or even just given the prevailing climate, north of 50-50 in favor of the B2B stuff. So this is what I'm really impressed with, because we all love the media business, and obviously you have your tentacles in a lot of different places in that business, and that's been a legacy part of the company. But to really plot out a diversified model that gives you enhanced growth and business diversification at the same time, I think, if I could be so bold, is the beginning of your legacy. You have a long way to go. We both are fans of writer David Brooks. I've been studying his concept, even off the New York Times op-eds, of what he calls the second mountain. We could talk about this as a personal development matter, but even from a business perspective, we all climb our first mountain. We've spoken about it a lot, which you reach in your core competency, hopefully, around our age groups. And then you start to hit a valley of thought about what you really want to be in the future versus where you came from. And that valley is a very self-aware process of what the business looks like and where you want to go. And then you start climbing your second mountain, which is kind of a scary place to be because it's not where you came from, but it could be a very joyful, productive, exuberant experience because it's really taking on a new chapter. And once you have a purpose about that, then it can be a transcendent. That's how I think about you, but how you're working with Hearst and transforming the business in your direction. Well, first of all, David Brooks is fabulous and perhaps the best columnist writing today. And like you, I'm excited to hear about his new book and to read it. At Hearst- I've really, already read it. Well, <laughs> Aria, you're nothing if not plugged in. So I, that doesn't surprise me at all. I think that at Hearst, at least, it really is a partnership. I don't look at this as in any way my legacy. Again, we're building on what William Randolph Hearst did and what Frank Binnick did, and he's still with it. We still have this fabulous group of trustees who are both some retired members of senior management who are still very actively involved, some daily. We're just very blessed. All of the divisions of Hearst, whether it would be Jordan Wortley running uh, Hearst Television, our 33 stations, or David Carey and now Troy Young running magazines, Mark Aldham, who's now our chief operating officer at the corporation, but he ran newspapers for many years now. Jeff Johnson, Neeraj Kemlani, who helps us oversee our entertainment portfolio. We just have a fabulous group of folks, Paul Taylor at Fitch or Ken Gray at Camper. We just have a fabulous group of really CEOs of their own business. Eve Burton. Who, Eve friend. Burton, our uh, chief legal officer, and Mitch Scherzer, our CFO. I'm going to leave somebody out, so I'm very nervous about this. But, you know, we just have a fabulous group of folks, and it's a collective partnership. Again, we got a great board, very supportive, Will Hurst and the Hurst family. So it's a collective, and really what we've done is really a continuum that starts with the founder. So we're just building off of that. To some respects, and I did see uh, David Brooks' thing on YouTube, so I guess I'm a little familiar. To some degree, I think what he could also be talking about is what people do outside of work. And we all mm -hmm. work most of the time, but obviously there's also can be another leg that doesn't necessarily have to interfere with what you're doing business-wise, but you know, making more of a giving back, more of a philanthropic commitment, more of a civic commitment. And there again, you know, working at Hearst, that's just... Baked into the DNA. I mean, we are all expected 
We've got David Carey now up at Harvard in this advanced program, trying to learn more about the not-for-profit mm -hmm. sector that will influence what he does, either in his business life or in his private life going forward. Certainly many of our trustees, Will is very philanthropic, uh, Frank Bennick's been on the New York Presbyterian Hospital Board for 40 years and and has served as its chairman, served as chairman of Lincoln Center. So we learned yeah. that. And, I've learned and, a lot from uh, Frank in that regard, and, and yourself, uh, because of the chairman of the Paley Center. Yeah, Frank's right? chairman of the Paley Center. So trying to follow in his footsteps there as well and, and, you know, work on things like Lincoln Center. I'm also pleased to be on the board at New York Presbyterian, a very uh, privileged to be on that board, uh, chairman of the Associated Press. So some of that is what one does to make a contribution in areas that are not directly, but can be related to what you do in the workplace. Yeah, for sure. I want to talk about the area of partnerships because Hearst has been known over a long period of time with one very notable example, which I'm going to bring up, of being a, just a phenomenal partner, contributing partner, investor, but one that's very easy to work with and obviously very productive to work alongside. And the example I'm referring to is ESPN. So Hearst, for a long time, has had a 20% ownership of ESPN in partnership with Disney, which has been the majority holder. Take us through how that came to be and why that partnership has worked so beautifully in the relationship with Disney overall. Well, yeah, I mean, we're just so fortunate to be tied. To Disney is innovating on so many levels. It, when you're thinking about uh, great CEOs in general or particularly great CEOs in the media business, you've got to start with Bob Iger. So. The history of it is Hearst and ABC when it was a standalone uh, company back in the early 80s. Leonard Goldenson, the phenomenal uh, man who built ABC, uh, and Frank Bennett came together and decided to have a television partnership that would aim at this new thing called cable television. And out of that partnership came the A&E and Lifetime channels and eventually the History Channel. Leonard also bought for ABC ESPN. Then uh, Capital Cities, the, the fabulous team of Murphy and Burke with Warren Buffett as their biggest shareholder, came in and acquired ABC. So our partner became Cap Cities ABC. During that time, 20% of ESPN that was not owned by Cap Cities, uh, ABC came up for sale. That 20% had been owned by the RJR Nabisco Company. And after the famous takeover by KKR that spawned the book and movie Barbarians at the Gate, they decided that they needed to sell down some non-core assets to pay down debt. And so they put their 20% up and Frank and his Hearst colleagues at the time acquired that 20%, aided by the fact that there was a comfort level at Cap Cities that we would be a good 20% holder to their 80. I know they regret not actually buying it themselves, but we benefited from that. And then in the mid-90s, Disney acquired Cap Cities, and they have been our partner ever since. And the relationship is really fabulous, and it's really across a huge swath of our media portfolios. So clearly Disney owns and controls ESPN. They own 80%. We own 20%. We like to think that we're very supportive and been good board members, but they're calling the shots. And Jimmy Pataro, the relatively new head of ESPN, is just doing a phenomenal job. 
50-50, we in Disney own A&E History and Lifetime and some of their other channels together. And we have a relatively new uh, CEO there and Paul Buccieri, who once again is just doing a phenomenal job running A&E. And then we own 15 ABC affiliate television stations. So we're really all in uh, in the television business as a partner of Disney. And you look at what Bob has done, first of all, you know, realizing, uh, I think before just about anybody did, that cable had carried the game for a long time. And while cable wasn't going away, new growth needed to be put in place. And Bob positioned Disney to have that new growth from blockbuster brands and his acquisitions of Star Wars and Marvel and Pixar just totally put them in place for a new era of growth and certainly inspired us. For us, we couldn't go into the movie business. William Randolph Hearst had tried that, decided that wasn't for us and moved on. But for us, that new leg of growth was business media. And I was very inspired by what Bob had done at Disney. And now he's positioning uh, Disney as the leader in uh, going uh, direct to consumer with the great brands. And we're already benefiting. ESPN Plus is off to a great start as a relatively new streaming brand. So uh, we couldn't have a better or more important partner than uh, Disney. Yeah, but that partnership continues to evolve. I mean, the 80-20 partnership with ESPN, that's clear. They call the shots, but you're a very supportive partner. And you probably obviously are very involved in uh, what's happening there, even though Disney's calling the shots. Yes. A&E, a 50-50 partnership is not easy because usually at 51-49 or someone has to call the shots, but 50-50, you're coming together and making decisions together. Is there ever an issue of like who has the hand when there's a No, I mean, it's really been great over many decades. This is one of those partnerships where the contract never comes out of the drawer. We've always been able to jointly make decisions and uh, keep things going. And, you know, A&E has just had phenomenal growth over the last 30 years. What do you think now that the Disney-Fox deal is closing or just closed or set to close, depending on uh, when we actually release this podcast? It's uh, obviously very uh, much imminent. That is now going to be a content juggernaut with a direct-to-consumer offering and getting bigger and bigger in its own right. How does that change your relationship with Disney? And is there some sense that the A&E partnership is kind of left behind or will that ultimately be part of that whole uh, content strategy? Well, I can't speak for Bob or Kevin Mayer or any of our great partners there. They'll have to and do do a great job of laying out their own strategy. You know, all I can say about A&E is it, it it's a big company. It's a significant company on its own. It's a significant part of our earnings is a significant part of Disney's earnings. So you can't imagine anything of that size and quality. I mean, right now, A&E has pretty much any way you slice it, three networks in the top 20. So I don't think you could ever think in terms of A&E being left behind. It's a significant asset. But we are in a scale moment for media, right? Which is evidenced by the Disney Fox deal, ATT Time Warner, Comcast Sky, other notable examples as well. Do you get concerned about being subscale or does your partnership with Disney make you feel more comfortable that you're tethered to one of the scale players? Well, we'll see. I mean, obviously, as you say, the landscape keeps changing. I wouldn't single A&E out. Look, 
every media business, regardless of its size, is evaluating change and trying to figure out what the future is. And it's hard to say if you want to look out five, 10 years, where we'll be, where the traditional bundle will be, where new bundles will be, how big a factor will streaming be, what will be the relative consumption patterns, traditional brands versus more Netflix or Amazon. Of course, Disney will now control a fabulous brand in Hulu. And so I just think for all consumer media brands, what the future holds is hard to predict. But all I'll say about A&E is three channels in the top 20. I feel pretty good about that. Top 20 on the cable dial. Yeah. But how do you think about it from a direct-to-consumer perspective? Well, we'll have to see. I mean, I think everything in the direct-to-consumer world is relatively nascent except for Amazon and a few other players. So, uh, yeah, Netflix, of course. So we'll see. Yeah. And then broader topic on technology. I mean, technology has to be brought into any business these days, not just about direct-to-consumer video plays. It's even software companies and business services and even this podcast, right? This is a new technology, even though it sounds like an old technology in the audio business. And it's your first podcast. So I'm happy to be welcoming you into the new frontier here. Thank you. But tell me about how Hearst incorporates technology know-how and partnerships. You and I spent some time together at the Microsoft CEO Summit. So I know that you're in the game and involved, but how do you think about it as a business leader? Well, obviously, there are many layers of uh, technology. I think what we're most excited about is what we think is the dawning of phenomenal new age of productivity across businesses uh, across the world. And, you know, much has been written. Professor Gordon wrote the seminal book about how what has happened in the modern era has not produced the same level of dramatic leaps in productivity as we had with the dawning of electricity, refrigeration, aviation, what have you. Kind of saying that so far the digital revolution or the streaming revolution or whatever kind of hasn't really produced that level of change. And there's been a lot written about Larry Summers in particular about a level of stagnation in the economy. I think, though, that we're on the cusp with artificial intelligence, machine learning, opportunities for automation. I think we're on the cusp of a great leap in productivity, and we're excited about it and trying to use it across every Hearst business, mostly from the notion that armed with insights pattern recognition and what have you from the computational power that's out there today that no individual has the time or resources to do. I just think our folks across the creative side, the business side, the finance side, just going to be making better decisions. And I think that's going to be pushed across. So a big focus for us that Mark Aldham, our chief operating officer, is leading is just to make sure that we are integrating machine learning and other uh, aspects of artificial intelligence in every business operation, using fabulous off-the-shelf tools, hiring some fabulous data scientists and mathematicians and what have you, to make sure that we're constantly trying to take our data, put it into better forms, and then run some learning against it and make better decisions. So projecting or speaking for our audience here and listening to you talk, you sound like a very sophisticated steward of capital and business executive. 
But there is also like a very funny and warm and inspirational side to Steve Sports because I know that side of you and you could let it out a little bit here. It's safe because we do share with each other our year-end letters that we send yep. to our people. And I'm grateful that you have entrusted me to read yours and get a sense of your leadership style. And I appreciate your obviously taking a look at mine and giving me your feedback as well. But give me a sense of how you lead. It's a big company. It's obviously you have company of a deep bench. You have Frank as an inspirational executive vice chair and leader, but really it's kind of a lonely job. So leadership is really there to serve the people and the company. And you do a great job of that. And I saw that really through your writing and your, your end letter. So what is your style? Well, first of all, I love the concept of an annual letter because hopefully uh, our colleagues benefit from it because we're a relatively diversified company and we want them to have a full appreciation of everything that's going on, the opportunities, the challenges, and where each of our major divisions is headed. Your letter is notable for a lot of business insight, but you also have book recommendations, which takes it one step farther than mine or even Warren Buffett's. And I think all of us are inspired by Warren's letters. I've read them all and I recommend to anybody who hasn't read them all. They are a phenomenal 40 plus years of business history and I guess maybe going on 50 years now of business history and insight and wisdom. And it's just amazing to read them. So I think many of us who write letters, Jamie Dimon, of course, writes a phenomenal letter, are inspired by Warren and his letter writing. And at that Microsoft conference, I was able to tell Warren. (laughs) And then typical Warren, he immediately turned around and recommended two or three letters that I should read that I hadn't read before. (laughs) Amazing. Just uh, fabulous. That was a great time. I got to meet Warren. We got to go to Bill Gates' house and see the library. Yeah. And, and, you know, Satya Nadal is doing such a fabulous job running Microsoft. So that was uh, great to be able to be at that conference. Leadership, I think today, not just for Hearst, but for most businesses is about collaboration. It's about working through differences to come up with a shared vision. Everybody's going to have different perspectives. Not all of our senior team are going to agree on everything, but getting people comfortable and with a path and working through and, and building a consensus for it, working with our management team, our trustees, our board. I think it's a lot about that. And I think things like an annual letter can add clarity because it's a very fast moving world. And sometimes you got to step back. At Hearst, I think, again, we're fortunate that whoever is in the CEO spot is supported by a group of trustees and board members. And again, fabulous senior folks. And I said, I know I'd leave somebody out, but I did want to mention, you know, uh, Rich Malik, who is our executive vice president for business media, really was integral to building that portfolio that we have of businesses today. So tell us something interesting about Steven Schwartz that most people don't know. <laughs> well, <laughs> interesting is a loaded word. And uh, <laughs> What do you do for fun? Uh, I love to read. I love to read history. I think the one volume biography of Churchill that came out that the New York Times pushed hard is just really, I mean, what a life. What an amazing life. This is Andrew uh, Roberts. Uh, book, Andrew yeah. Roberts, yeah. just phenomenal. And I like to be current and reading about policy and thinking. And you've recommended the trilogy, The Sapiens and the 
dads. Yeah, and... Homo dads. So those uh, are great by the Israeli uh, historian. Harari, yeah. yeah, he's fabulous. And so I've read all of those. So I, I like to read a lot. I like to watch a lot of ESPN. And my wife says, you know, I hope you don't think this is actually counts as business when you're <laughs> sitting there watching, you know, basketball game or football game at the, and lacrosse games. And, uh, and you like, like to travel, right? Or your wife likes to travel. My wife is always planning something and thank goodness because we get to see the world through her. And then finally, I'm trying to learn how to play golf. I think after a year and a half of lessons, I'm making a little bit of progress. It's great because it concentrates the mind. There's that little ball sitting on a nice piece of grass. The ball doesn't move. And it's just so confounding. The inability to hit it squarely is quite a challenge, but I'm making progress. My one recommendation for you on that topic of golf is I would suggest you pick up ping pong instead. It's a lot more efficient. 15 minutes, you're done. You can go back home, go back to your office, and you get the same kind of rush. I just want to say this about <laughs> ping pong. I was a good ping pong player when I was a kid. We had a table in our basement, and I had a sister who was two years younger, and she would get invited to all the parties when we were in high school, and I wouldn't. So I would be in the basement playing with another guy who didn't get invited to the parties <laughs> either. We got very good at ping pong. But I had a humbling experience, and I think all of us do as we get older, and particularly as our kids get older. One's almost 21, and one's about to turn 17. And they became such great ping pong players. I taught them to play, <laughs> and now I don't think they'll play with me. And if they would, I wouldn't enjoy it. So well, we have I pretty much it. retired after seeing how far I'd no, fallen No, no, you can play it into your older ages. I pride ourselves that we have a ping pong table here in the office from day one, and even as we've grown, we've kept it in. I flushed out all the best ping pong players in media because they come over here to play and some with a change of clothes because they're so serious about it and they're so good at it that they come in and they want to make sure they don't get work too worked up. <laughs> but Steve, I appreciate your being here. Finish with us on the book that you're reading today that we should all uh, take advice from. I'm reading uh, so many at the same time right now. And what I've really been trying to do, I'm reading about two or three all in the realm of machine learning or artificial intelligence. And I can't for the life of me remember the names of any of the three, but I think all of us needs to really educate ourselves in that area and, and be on the cutting edge. And, you know, one last anecdote from the Churchill book, he wasn't just a visionary in terms of where he saw the menace of Hitler and Nazism. He was incredibly knowledgeable about the technology of the day. He had this quirky professor who would come visit him all the time and make sure that he was totally current on military technology, aviation technology. So when he took over, he really was ready to lead the British war effort. I'm trying to learn from that. All of us can learn from that. None of us is innately as knowledgeable as we should be about these areas, but we all have to both read as much as we can, but also find the people either inside our company or outside who really know about this and make sure we're constantly talking this through because I think the implications are very great. Indeed. Side note, because you're going to talk about golf and you're going to talk about all the things you're interested in, but really, from my perspective, where you thrive is in your style and how you dress. And I have to say, whenever I get up in the morning knowing I'm going to see you, it changes the way that I dress because I feel like I have to bring it because you're one of the more impeccably dressed executives out there. Not to offend anybody else out there, but you're just a notch above. 
Well, let me just respond to that by saying, since people can't see the two of us on this podcast, as I sit here, I am in my usual uniform, which is kind of IBM salesman circa 1960. I have a navy blue suit on, a white shirt, a blue tie, and black high socks. I'm looking over at Arye Borkoff, who looked like he just stepped out of, I'll plug one of our publications, Esquire. I mean, there is a subtle check shirt. There's a striped tie that goes exactly with the colors of the check. There's a very interesting, shall we say, I know he spends some time in London. There's a very British looking kind of cardigan and the suit has a lot of subtle texture to it. I mean, this man is really well-dressed and he knows it. So the last time (laughs) Arie came and visited Hearst, he was as turned out as he is today. And he insisted that we take a picture. So my assistant took a picture and then Arie had the picture framed and he sent it to the house. And we're not sure who did it. It may have been one of the boys. It may have been somebody that says, oh, here's a picture. So in our family room, we have pictures of all of our family members, you know, the kids, cousins, nephews, nieces, whatever. And one day I'm looking at it with my wife and we're both looking and we says, how did Borkov get in our family collection? <laughs> so there is the picture of Arie and me right in the middle of the sports family collection. So that just, for me, underscores the ubiquity of Arie Borkov. He is truly the zealot of modern New York life. Well, I appreciate that. There are many ways to cover a client, and this was one of our approaches. <laughs> well, I'm glad that we're on audio and not uh, being visualized today. <laughs> we look nothing like the way you described it. No, I'm joking. Well, thank you for being with us on Kindred Cast, and I uh, look forward to the continuing to learn from you and our collaboration and watching you thrive both in giving back as well as in your chief executive role at Hearst. Well, thank you, Ari. Great pleasure. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Feel free to leave a review there as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at KindredCast for behind the scenes photos and info. Keep listening and see you next time. Audiation.